Let's take a moment to pray together now. Let's pray. One day, Lord, when will that day be? What are we waiting for? When will justice come? When will we wake up? When will the poor hear the good news? One day, Lord. But we want to live today as though that one day we're here so that we could be signposts, advanced parties of the kingdom that your son came to proclaim. So help us as we consider today the stewardship of the earth to recognize that we have power, that we can make decisions, that we can make choices that will change the shape of the earth in which we live and help us to make those choices wisely, that we might steward your earth with care. So hear our prayers because we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. He wasn't the kind to quote scripture at you, but I remember him doing just that on my first harvest Sunday here in Belhelvy. I'd come from the city where many of the churches tend to speak about the harvest in its global context because we've little connection with the land. But here was a local farmer, fresh from the fields in the parish, expressing his faith in and thanks to a God who orders and provides. As long as the earth endures, he said, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Those words clearly meant a lot to him, and I think I know what they meant to him. He was acknowledging that we do our work and God does his. We plow the fields and scatter, but it's God who gives the growth. For him, the harvest service was a time to honor all the wonder and mystery of this God-given world and the one who blesses it with such amazing vitality. And that always has to be a part of what this service is about, honoring God, celebrating creation, and expressing our thanks and support to those who work the land on behalf of the rest of us. So on behalf of the rest of us, I want to say thank you to our farmers this morning for committing to all that your vocation asks of you with such selflessness and dedication. And who knows, depending on how things go politically over the next few years, we might be even more reliant on the skills and hard work of our British farmers. But this morning, I want us to be thinking about the global more than the local, perhaps. I think that's where our focus needs to be today. Sitting here in the parish of Belhelvy, it's not too hard to hear those words from Genesis 
and feel like they're universally true. We have bad harvests and good harvests. We have bad summers and good summers. But things tend to even out for us over the years. Experience suggests that the wheel of the seasons will keep on turning and harvest will come and go as it has always done. But if you're a farmer in parts of Africa or China where drought has become the norm over the last 20 years, or parts of the world where rainfall has increased so dramatically that your crops are regularly flooded, it might be harder to hear those words and take them at face value. And what struck me as I prepared for today is that although God promises that the cycles of nature will never cease, He doesn't promise that they won't change. They can and they do change. And what we're seeing in our own lifetime are the ways in which our choices are changing the ecosystem in which we live. We're relatively insulated from those changes. In the UK, we're in no immediate danger for now, but other parts of the world aren't so fortunate. But of course, the minute you start to talk about this, you're stepping into a minefield, which is part of a war zone. When I googled to do some research for today, I typed in the words, is climate change? And these were the results that came back. This is what people are searching Google for. Is climate change part of the national curriculum? There's obviously a few concerned students out there. Is climate change real? Is it a hoax? Is it natural? Is it man-made? Is it reversible? And so on. How do we know the truth about these things in a post-truth world, where if you don't like the facts, you just go away and you dig up some alternative facts. Well, as a former scientist, it seems to me that the wisest thing to do is to cut through all the rhetoric and recrimination and emotion and get back to the data that's beyond dispute. And when you do that, a pretty clear picture emerges. And what I'm going to present to you over the next few minutes are not opinions, they're facts. They're scientifically verifiable facts, peer-reviewed. The place we need to begin is with carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is one of the things causing most concern, and carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It's like a blanket keeping the heat in, and we need that blanket there to protect us. But when the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere increases, the temperature of the earth also increases. It's a fact that much modern human activity, including some forms of transportation, energy production, manufacturing, and deforestation, raise the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's a fact. It's also a fact that the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere stayed in a narrow range over the last million years. But in the last hundred years, the years of rapid industrialization, atmospheric CO2 levels have risen from 280 parts per million to over 400 parts per million. This next graph shows the levels of atmospheric CO2 over the last thousand years. How do we know this? They have taken ice core samples from Antarctica 
which are like a snapshot of the CO2 levels across time. This particular graph came in the peer-reviewed scientific journal Nature. And you'll see a very clear spike in the CO2 levels, coincidentally, from about the middle of the 1800s, 17-1800s, the period when industrialization began. It's a fact that global surface temperatures have risen by over a degree in the last hundred years. Although the earth cycles through historic falls and rises in temperature, that's a natural process, nobody's arguing that doesn't happen, this current increase has happened at an unprecedented rate. And there's a direct correlation between the rise in temperature and the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. On this graph, the yellow line is the CO2 levels, and the red line is the average temperature. You'll see there's a correlation between the two. When CO2 in the atmosphere increases, temperature increases. Again, using scientific data from NASA and other reputable sources. This next image is one that I hadn't seen before. And I think it's really interesting. This shows temperature data for each continent and each country across the world over a period of over a century. What they did was they averaged the average temperature for each uh, uh, country for a year. So say, for instance, they might say the average temperature of the UK over the year, over a year is 15. What they did was they, um, so they averaged that across the time period concerned. And then there were years that sometimes were cooler on average than what we would expect, and years that were warmer on average than what we would expect. The cooler years are marked in blue, the warmer years are marked in red. And it really couldn't be more clear. The world is warming up. The dark red pixels are showing a temperature rise of between one and one and a half degrees. And it's happening across the world. It's a fact. The 20 warmest years on record have all occurred within the past 22 years, with the years from 2015 to 2018 making up the top four. The planet is getting hotter. That's a fact. And as a result, Arctic ice and glaciers have shrunk, raising sea levels by six and a half inches over the last century. Again, there's another picture we can see here. This data is provided by NASA. The yellow uh, border there is showing the mean extent of sea ice in the years between 1981 and 2010. The white outline there is where the sea ice was in September 2018. How much is, of a diminution is that? What would you say? A third? A quarter? A third? In the space of 30 years. Sea acidity has increased. Because of the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, the CO2 gets absorbed into the sea and it changes the pH of the sea. This is having a damaging effect on the marine environment, most especially the coral reefs. Here's a picture of the same area of coral. It's healthy in December 2014. It's beginning to die by February 2015 and it's dead completely by August 2015. Less than a year has seen it move from health to death. And this is happening across the world because the, the acidity of the sea is changing. A 2013 study 
of 12,000 academic papers on climate change over a 20-year period found that 97% of the authors agreed that human factors were significantly driving global warming. Those are the facts. The vast majority of the scientific community and the research that they're producing are telling us that these changes in climate aren't just natural phenomena. There's a natural element to it. Nobody's disputing that, I think, but they are largely driven now and added to, made worse by the human component. The way that we are living is radically affecting the conditions on our planet. Even local anecdotal evidence backs that up. Speak to people of a certain age around here and they will tell you about winters when they were practically snowed in for weeks at a time and summers when the sun actually shone and it was dry most of the time. Harder winters, drier summers. That's what they tell us. And have you noticed how much flooding there's been in the UK over the last 10 years or so? Just a few years ago, the wall at the back of the manse collapsed under the weight of water that I gathered in the field behind us after four days of torrential rain. And it seems like every winter now in the UK, there's some poor village on the news because our rivers burst at banks and folk are trying to save their houses with sandbags or floating down the main street in a dinghy. Why is it happening? Because it's warmer. And much of the precipitation that used to fall as snow is now falling as rain. Snow takes time to melt and find its way into water courses. Rain doesn't. And that's why when it rains instead of snows, the flooding gets worse. Even here, as protected as we are, we're experiencing the effects of climate change. And forgive the pun, but this is only the tip of the iceberg. If the scientists are right, a global temperature rise of two degrees is going to change our ecosystem irreversibly, triggering more flooding and displacing tens of millions of people from their homes. People who need clothed and housed and fed. If the temperature keeps rising at these rates, the map of the world is literally going to have to be redrawn by the end of the century. That's not hysteria. That's the cold logic of where these numbers are taking us. As one researcher put it rather brilliantly, we are the first generation to fully understand climate change and the last generation to be able to do something about it. But it's so easy not to do anything, isn't it? Because let's face it, we're not really affected by this, are we? Our fields aren't cracked and dry. Our crops aren't regularly getting washed away in flashed floods. It's somebody else's problem, isn't it? That's how we think. But that's dangerous thinking. The world is not nearly as large and as resilient as we like to think it is. As I was preparing for today, I remembered these words of Martin Niemöller, 
a German Lutheran pastor who initially had supported Hitler until he realized where his policies were taking the country. From then on, Niemöller openly opposed the Reich and he was imprisoned in Dachau concentration camp until his release by the Allies in 1945. Reflecting on his inaction in the face of the facts, he said, first they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. If we think that climate change is somebody else's problem, we're kidding ourselves. If the worst happens, it happens to all of us. We are all going to be affected. We have a limited time to take action, and that time is now. Because we're coming to a tipping point, and once the seesaw has tipped, sadly, there's no tipping it back. That's why our young people are angry. It's their future that we are gambling with. Forgive me for saying it, but most of us here have already lived most of our lives. They've got half a century and more ahead of them. What kind of world are we handing over into their care? Some of you know that Ross has had flat problems over the last couple of months. I won't bore you with the story, but through no fault of their own, he and his flatmates had to try and find a new flat in Glasgow just a couple of weeks before term started. And of course, by that stage, they had booked a flat in June, long story, had to get out of it. But by that stage, all of the good flats were gone. And in the end, they had to pretty much take whatever they could find by way of accommodation. And they found a good-sized flat very close to the uni, positive. Uh, but Rona went down the weekend that they got the keys to help them clean up and move in. Now, my wife has been round the block a few times, and she is not easily shocked. But boy, was she shocked at the state of that flat. It was disgusting. She called a Glasgow friend and she and her husband came over to help. They spent a full six hours along with Ross and his flatmates going at it with bleach and scrubbing brushes to get up to something approaching habitable. Six hours driving there and back. Six hours non-stop cleaning. Nice fun weekend for Rona. Needless to say, she was exhausted by the time she got back. But her overriding emotion that day was anger. What did those clowns at the letting agency think they were doing, handing over a place in that state to those kids? What did they think they were doing?
We started in Genesis, and we're going to end in Genesis, which tells us not only that man was put into the garden to work it, but to take care of it. Take care of it, God said. This isn't hippie liberalism. I'm not a tree hugger. It's not anti-capitalist rhetoric. It's solid biblical Christian theology. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And we are charged with taking care of all that God has made. But what can we do to help? Everybody knows that China and the United States and India are the problem. Together, they're responsible for over half of the world's CO2 emissions. Helps if you have leaders in place who care about that, I should add. What can we do in the UK? Well, I want to suggest we can do two things. Firstly, we can lead by example. We can take care about what we invest in and how we use our buying power. We can choose to live more simply, shop more locally, travel more responsibly, vote more tactically. We can deliberately make choices that are kinder to the environment. And it's little things like switching lights off. My kids are always nagging me about that. When I leave my office light on by mistake, they always say, Dad, you're killing polar bears again but I've got my revenge because they always leave the doors to the porch open and let the heat out of the house. So I just come back. You're killing polar bears too. Close that door. Where does your lamb come? Where does it come from for your Sunday roast? New Zealand or from Scotland? Where do your oranges come from? Spain or Florida? Think about the air miles. What about going electric or hybrid for your next car if you can afford it? I'm waiting for the day they make an affordable electric car. And it makes sense for the kind of journeys that you make. If you're going long distance, it may not work, but if you're local, it may. What about getting solar panels for your home? And I know these things are only a drop in the ocean, but what is an ocean but a million drops all gathered together in one place? Together, we have collective power. If a 13-year-old with Asperger's can shame the politicians into action, why can't we make a difference? We can lead by example. And then secondly, we can also consciously remember the future. We need to remember the future. Our part of the world is so focused on the now, getting, earning, making, spending, enjoying in the now. But with all that we're discovering in the now, we need to start lifting our eyes to the future a wee bit. I'm going to read you a few lines from a poem by Wendell Berry, a farmer poet, and it's called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And in this poem, he contrasts the short-termism he sees all around him with his cussed farmer's determination to love the land and take a longer view. He starts with criticism. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. 
Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build up under the trees every thousand years. Practice resurrection. Be different. Take the long view. That's what he's saying. And that same idea was summed up much more succinctly by a young climate change protester I know very well because she happens to be my eldest daughter. And I will end with this. We were eating baking of some kind a while back. That happens a lot in our house. Baking and the eating of baking. And I can't remember what we were eating, but while I finished mine off, as I am wont to do, Mary decided not to. I'm going to keep this bit for later on, she said. My future self will thank me. Will future generations thank us or curse us for the way that we have stewarded God's creation? The harvest will go on, God promises, and that is good news. But if we keep in this trajectory, it won't be going on in the places where people rely on it most and have no other way of making a living. The places where the very land under their feet is becoming cracked and dry to the point of uselessness or is six feet underwater that didn't used to be there. The scriptures couldn't be clearer. We're called to be our brother and sister's keeper. And we are called to be stewards, not masters, of God's earth. That means not just working the garden. It means caring for it too. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. We're going to continue in our worship now as our offerings are uplifted.